Developer experience is one of the core pillars that makes Fuel Fuel. So the other core pillars are the Fuel VM, parallel transaction execution, and developer experience. They're the three things that we care the most about. They're the three things that we think separate us from other projects. So it's definitely not an afterthought or, you know, just a coincidence. The smart contract language that we use, Sway, is safer and it leverages the power of Rust. And, and what I mean by that is in Rust, the compiler will tell you things at compile time. Instead of letting you deploy a bad contract, the compiler will tell you, hey, at line 37, you have a reentrancy vulnerability. A reentrancy vulnerability is basically a way someone can drain your contract. It's a bug. So the Sway compiler will say, on line 37, you have this vulnerability and it won't let you deploy it. You'll have to fix it. That's one example. Another example is these things called enums, where basically it forces the developer to handle all possible cases. So if there's uh, you know, a function, let's say, and it can either return true or false, and then you as a developer only handle the true case, the compiler will yell at you and it won't let you build it and say, you haven't handled the false case. Write, uh, write something to handle the false case. Um, so those two ways are just like two examples off the top of my head in which we improve the developer experience so that people have, a, you know, just a better time writing. And kind of the other thing that we're improving about Ethereum is, is you, as you guys know, if you've written a smart contract or a dApp on Ethereum, you have to install ethers.js, you have to set up Hardhat or Foundry, you have to copy and paste your API in the front end. There's just like a lot of moving pieces that you have to keep track of. And in Fuel, we built the whole tool chain and it's all vertically integrated seamlessly. So you never have to like NPM install anything. You never have to copy and paste. You never have to like check your versions and make sure that your versions work. You never have to use Open Zeppelin. The Sway team and the Fuel team created everything, the whole tooling suite, so that it can work seamlessly together. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Devs Do Something podcast. Today we have as our guest, Cami Ramos Garzon, aka Cami in this thing on Twitter. Cami is a Colombian American engineer who began her career as a software engineer at PayPal before ultimately getting involved in Web3. She's a natural communicator who quickly found a fit in developer relations for some of the industry's largest and fastest moving protocols like the graph. Today, she is the head of developer relations at Fuel Labs, where she's helping to build out a high quality developer experience for engineers who want to build applications on top of the Fuel VM. In addition to this, she's prolific on Twitter and before DevCon, had a post go viral on why crypto needs to focus on Latin America if it wants to reach its full potential. We recorded this episode live at an event we did during DevCon week in Bogota. Uh, So if you hear any clapping or things in the crowd, that's what that is. It's a bit shorter than our typical episodes because we had some time constraints due to the events, but this is a great one. Kemi has a very inspiring story. And if you're someone that's looking to to break into Web3 as either an engineer or DevRel person, this episode's for you. I hope you enjoy. Are you a DAO or crypto native business with salaried employees? Or do you perhaps work for one? If so, whether you're a team of five or 500, your organization can save time and money by streaming salaries with Superfluid, who also happens to be the beloved producer of this podcast. With salary streaming, your management team no longer has to worry about executing multi-sig operations every month or manually executing hundreds of separate transactions to pay their team. Contributors and employees, on the other hand, get paid by the second, which, to be honest with you, is a pretty killer benefit on the receiving end. Those of us getting paid via stream can connect our wallet to the Superfluid dashboard and see our balances ticking up in real time. It's kind of mesmerizing and feels like you're being jacked 
10 years in the future. When you're paid in a stream, it flows in perpetuity until your team needs to adjust compensation, which effectively puts Web3 payroll on autopilot. Salary streaming is easy to set up thanks to our recent integration with CoinShift, the leading crypto treasury management platform. In just a few clicks, you can securely set up payroll for hundreds of employees in just a single transaction, all from CoinShift's dashboard. If this sounds like something you're interested in exploring, you should visit superfluid.finance/payroll and book a salary streaming demo today. Thanks to all of our sponsors. Let's get on to the episode. Cammy, typically what we do before we get into some of the more technical things and, and really talk shop about what you do in DevRel is just get a little bit about your background from your point of view. Um, can you tell us how you got involved in Web3? Yeah, so my background, like uh, you mentioned earlier, I actually had a more traditional path to computer science where I studied computer science in college. And I've always had a love for education ever since I was young. It has been something that came naturally to me. I'm the oldest of four siblings. And just on top of that, my mom would tell stories about how when I was little, I would line up my teddy bears in my room and like stand up and teach them and try to teach them how to read. And it's something I've always been naturally inclined to. Uh, so when I was kind of growing up in high school, I always thought I was going to be a K-12 public school teacher, and I kind of just thought that would be what I wanted to do. And then as I got older, I realized that wasn't really a viable path to life, at least in America, where, you know, teachers aren't paid well. It's just not really the best place to go to. And being an immigrant, you know, I was born in Colombia. My family's from Colombia. My family, oh. yeah, go Colombia. <laughs> My family left Colombia you know, because of all of the turmoil that was going on back then. I was born in 98, so they lived through kind of the thickest, deepest, most kind of horrific things that happened in Colombia. So they left wanting a better life for me, wanting better opportunities for me. And it wasn't really an option to not be successful. I, I had to make it. I had to not only just like make it, but I actually had to exceed and be in a place where I could make their sacrifices worth it. <laughs> I'm like getting sad. <laughs> It's all good. Take your time. Oh, my God. Okay. Um, it's just very surreal to be back in Colombia. And I'm actually from Bogota. My parents are from Bogota. It's not, it wouldn't be surprising if they probably sat at this restaurant, maybe, you know, like they probably walked these streets. So it feels very surreal to be back. And um, back where I was at, it just was like, I had to be successful. I had to make it worth it. My parents gave up everything for me to be here. My mom is a dentist. My dad is an accountant. And when they came to the States, they had to clean bathrooms and um, like drive cars and basically just do the lowest level work that you could get in America. So for me, it was like, okay, I can't go fucking be a teacher and like not make any money. It's not going to work out. So then when I was in high school, I was like, what career path can I take on that would make me very successful financially? And I grew up in the Bay Area, which for those who aren't familiar, that's basically Silicon Valley where all the engineers live, like Apple, Google. So I grew up kind of knowing about engineering just because I lived in that area, but I never knew too much about it. And in high school, my public high school, which in the United States, the way it works basically is if you live in a low-income neighborhood, your public school tends to be low quality. It doesn't tend to be the best and have the most opportunities. I went to one of those high schools and uh, they brought on what's called an hour of code, which is this initiative to try to get more kids to learn how to code. And I did that. And from there, I was like, oh my God, I think I want to learn how to code, mostly because I knew it would be a good career path, not because I was super into it. Then I was like, all right, I'm going to take computer science at school. 
obviously, when you go to a low-income school, they don't even have computer science. Um, I, went, I was lucky enough to go to a school where they actually did have computer science, but they only had 60 available seats for a school of almost 4,000. Uh, so they did it by lottery. And if you didn't get in, you had to try again next year. And by this time, I was a junior, which in the States, you apply to college as a junior. So basically, for me, I felt like it was too late. I missed my opportunity. Then I started to learn how to code by myself on the side. Um, eventually, I took a gap semester where I taught myself how to code. I went to boot camps, and then I started in community college. So that's a very long-winded way to say. <laughs> I thought I was going to be in education, ended up in engineering, and felt this thing inside me where I felt like I was kind of being a traitor, you know, where I was like, I wanted to help people and I want to do something good for the world. And now I'm just another engineer. And it wasn't until kind of my run in in high school where I couldn't take CS, where I learned about the systemic issues of how students like me, Latino students, black students, low income students can't really access computer science. And kind of for the first time, I had that moment of clarity where I was like, oh, I can still help people and I can still do education while still doing engineering. So I studied computer science. Um, I graduated with my degree. I started working at PayPal. And in 2018, I founded a nonprofit called STEM Tank in the Bay Area, where we teach low-income kids how to code for free after school. And since then, we've taught more than 600 students. And now I have a team of four people who works on that. So, yeah. So always have loved education. And then I got into crypto because I was at PayPal. And at the time, they were rolling out that crypto wallet for Venmo like two years ago. So it's kind of why I started experimenting with blockchain on the side. And I wrote this blog post about the graph just through my own learning and just wanted to share what I was learning. And it kind of blew up and the graph reached out to me and was like, hey, this is really good. Do you want to come work for us? And I was like, yeah. So that's how I got into crypto and Web3 full time. One thing I'm curious about, right? Like I've noticed that this particular segment of tech, right, for all its flaws, is very, is very open, right? It's very welcoming. Um, what, what has your experience been like uh, as somebody who, you know, just got into the space, literally published a blog post, ended up in the space as a result of that? I came from a, like a very similar situation where I just started making videos about Superfluid and <laughs> they were like, hey, do you want to come do this for us? So I totally relate to that. But what, what has the vibe been like for you in Web3 so far? The vibe has been so welcoming. Like since I joined, you know, I joined kind of peak pandemic. So I wasn't going to in-person events until very recently. And even online, everyone was super nice, super welcoming. People answered my DMs. I made this joke on Twitter where I was like, in Web 2, you know, you can't talk to any executives in any company. Even me at PayPal, I never, I don't even know the names of the executives at PayPal. And in Web 3, you can literally just like DM all the CEOs of all the major protocols and they'll like respond to you and be like, hey, yeah, like, what's up? Answer your questions. So I love that about the culture. And it's been super welcoming to me. And I know a lot of people have had that experience, too. And it's something that I hope we can preserve as we continue to grow and kind of go mainstream. I feel like I'd be remiss if I didn't let you do your thing and actually teach the audience some technical things. Right. So you work at Fuel now. Right. Can you give our audience a brief introduction to Fuel? Yeah, so Fuel is a layer two, but better. That's the way I like to put it. We call ourselves a modular execution layer. And if you've heard of Celestia, maybe we're kind of playing that same space of modular blockchains. And what's really unique about Fuel is that we are scaling Ethereum with a new virtual machine with a different transaction model. We use a UTXO model as opposed to Ethereum's account model. And we do a lot of really cool things, including our new and own programming language that's based on Rust called Sway. And for us, we're like, how can we create the best developer experience so that developers can write smart and secure 
safe, smart contracts so that we can scale Ethereum to places like Latin America and other regions where people are more price sensitive because they just make less income, right? Like for us, if you lose $1,000 in a bad contract, like it sucks, but you're like, you're going to make it, right? You're going to survive. If you do this to someone in Latin America and they lose $1,000 in a smart contract, then like that's way more catastrophic than it is for, you know, than it is for us. So for me, that's kind of one of the main reasons why I joined Fuel is the, the vision and bringing blockchain to everyone and not just bringing blockchain to everyone, but doing it in a secure way so that everyone can really harness the power of Ethereum. Totally. Yeah. And one of the thing, so as a, as a DevRel person myself, you know, I went through the Fuel docs last night, right? I looked at Sway, I looked at Fuel TS, which is like, a, like an API, right? And you have an indexer or something like that you wrote too for data? You know, I, I really respect teams that care a lot about developer experience. So I'd love to understand, like, how do you, how do you and the Fuel team approach DevX? Like, like, is it just like something that permeates your entire organization? Like, do you guys, like, you don't have to reveal all your, all your alpha here, but do you guys have a specific process? Like, I'd love, I'd love to understand how you approach it. Yeah, developer experience is one of the core pillars that makes Fuel Fuel. So the other core pillars are the Fuel VM, parallel transaction execution, and developer experience. They're the three things that we care the most about. They're the three things that we think separate us from other projects. So it's definitely not an afterthought or, you know, just a coincidence. But the team has been very thoughtful and very has put a lot of work in to make that experience amazing and more than just a new programming language or more than just saying we have a good DevX. As the head of developer relations, I actually wrote those docs that you read. And um, part of that has gone, you know, been me learning how to use Fuel because I only joined about three months ago. And really, I can tell you, not even a shill, the developer experience of building dApps on Fuel is way better than on Ethereum simply because two things. The smart contract language that we use, Sway, is safer and it leverages the power of Rust. And, And what I mean by that is in Rust, the compiler will tell you things at compile time. Instead of letting you deploy a bad contract, the compiler will tell you, hey, at line 37, you have a reentrancy vulnerability. A reentrancy vulnerability is basically a way someone can drain your contract. It's a bug. So the Sway compiler will say, on line 37, you have this vulnerability and it won't let you deploy it. You'll have to fix it. That's one example. Another example is these things called enums, where basically it forces the developer to handle all possible cases. So if there's, uh, you know, a function, let's say, and it can either return true or false, and then you as a developer only handle the true case, the compiler will yell at you and it won't let you build it and say, you haven't handled the false case. Write, uh, write something to handle the false case. Um, so those two ways are just like two examples at the top of my head in which we improve the developer experience so that people have, a, you know, just a better time writing. And kind of the other thing that we're improving about Ethereum is, is you, as you guys know, if you've written a smart contract or a dApp on Ethereum, you have to install ethers.js, you have to set up hardhat or foundry, you have to copy and paste your ABI in the front end. There's just like a lot of moving pieces that you have to keep track of. And in Fuel, we built the whole tool chain and it's all vertically integrated seamlessly. So you never have to like NPM install anything. You never have to copy and paste. You never have to like check your versions and make sure that your versions work. You never have to use Open Zeppelin. The Sway team and the Fuel team created everything, the whole tooling suite, so that it can work seamlessly together. And the way that it contrasts in Ethereum is, for example, one team built Solidity, the other team built the EVM, Nomic Labs built Hardhat, Paradigm built Foundry. So the space is very fragmented in different pieces, and it's up to us as developers to kind of figure it out and make it work. And Fuel's thesis is, hey, if we just build the entire developer suite to work with each other, because it's all built by one team who, you know, 
can make sure that everything works perfectly, then for the developers, it's such a seamless experience where you literally just like run one line and it generates your ABIs in the front end and you're done. You never have to set up ethers. You never have to set up web3.js. We have the TypeScript SDK, which does something similar, which basically allows you to interact with your contracts from the front end. That's really interesting. It's like an attempt at vertically integrating the entire tool chain for an ecosystem. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting. Uh, is, there, is there anything on the roadmap in terms of DevX? Like, are there, any, are there any pieces of tooling you're actively working on right now? Uh, is there anything you wish maybe your ecosystem would build? I'd love to understand people that are curious, that are technical in the audience, like, is there anything that they could contribute? Yeah, so Fuel is developed completely in the open. It's completely open source. Anyone can become a contributor. Anyone can check out our issues and start contributing. Uh, one way that contributors can kind of start participating immediately is by writing libraries in Sway. So Sway is the programming language that I said is based on Rust. And you can, for example, say, I want to write a library to handle scientific applications, for example, where you need 30 decimal points. So I'm going to write a library that handles the specific uh, use case, and then different teams who end up building with that use case will use your library. That's what we've seen a few people do. Uh, we're also working on our wallet experience and building out one of the best wallets in the game right now that allows you to do things like actually use Solana's wallet or Ethereum's wallet and not just have to use Fuel's wallet. Another thing I'm excited about is right now we're working on a feature where Developers will be able to write in Sway and target the EVM directly. So instead of having to deploy on Fuel as a rollup on Ethereum, you'll be able to write in Sway and, you know, we'll write a compiler that targets the EVM directly. So you can still leverage Ethereum while leveraging a more efficient smart contract language like Sway. So we just went through a lot of the, the developer side of developer relations. Um, we talked, I mean, you talked a little bit earlier how, like, you, you're a very good communicator. I uh, used to, like be really into education, you wanted to maybe be a teacher. What I'd love to understand, is, like as someone who also does workshops, like I do a lot of workshops and things, you've probably done many workshops this week. How do you approach a new workshop? Like, do you have a consistent process? I mean, I'd love to understand what that looks like for you. Yeah, for me, one of the things that is kind of common in all my workshops is I always try to start from first principles. And that sounds like common sense, but you would be surprised. Like anyone here, raise your hand if you've ever tried to follow a tutorial and they like skip a hundred steps and you're like, what the fuck? How did we even get here? Like, it's right. That's like every developer goes through that where they're like, okay, all you're going to do is da 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 da. And you're like, how did we even get there? Like, how did you even set up your file? How did you even start the project? Like, what did you download to get here? So one thing I, I had that experience a lot, right? Like I studied yes, and I went through this literally for five years in school and then also like five years just learning on my own. So one thing I really take pride in doing is I always start from first principles, whether that be like in all my talks, I explain what is a blockchain. I literally have a slide called blockchain 101, just so that we're all on the same page. And I don't make any assumptions about what the, what the audience knows or doesn't know. Uh, that's one thing. And then kind of the other thing is I always try to make it where I can leave them with a resource that they can try at home. So workshops are always, you know, pretty sure like 30 minutes to an hour, maybe an hour and a half. And there's just no way you're going to be able to learn. Like if I tried to give you a workshop on fuel, there's no way you would take it all in right now. So what I do is I always create something on GitHub that I then publish on Twitter and I just open source it. And I say, you know, you can take this online at home whenever you feel like it. And it's open source. You can add a contribution. You can translate it to another language. You can add a suggestion. You can expand the project to make it more difficult. Those are the two things that I always kind of take pride in and make sure I do. Yeah, one thing I've noticed is I think developers are sometimes blind to how much assumed context they have, right? Like, you know, if you're an engineer, you're usually like really deep in the weeds and it's very hard for you to go back to zero and explain it from first principles, like you said. 
So let's say that there's somebody in the audience here who is a developer, right? They maybe wants to become a founder or they want to become a dev or they want to do something where they're going to have to go explain their work to lots of people, right? How would you coach them to start thinking like this when they, when they explain their work to other people? Yeah, I would say the first thing is to have very clear what your goal is. And uh, that also sounds simple, but you would also be surprised how many people kind of get on stage and just kind of ramble and kind of just talk and <laughs> like just say things that are important and valuable, but they're not really able to collect all of their thoughts in a way that it makes a lot of sense to the audience. So one is just understand what's your goal. Do you want them to leave knowing how your protocol works? Do you want them to leave understanding what exactly you mean by developer experience? Do you want them? So go down that list. And then I would say a lot of it is also just kind of general rules of public communication, right? Like pronunciate, stand up straight, try not to say, um, you know, things like that all make a huge difference when you're on stage, especially when you're talking to developers, right? Where the attention span is so short that if you get on that stage and you're like, um, so we're going to talk about, um, like you already lost them. So just practice, understand what your goals are and really just like have confidence. And one way to have confidence is to be prepared. With the very first time I did any type of public presentation that like mattered at any point, I was so nervous backstage. My knees were shaking. Like I was literally so nervous. And the host that was getting ready to announce me, he was like, nervous is for people who aren't prepared. Are you prepared? And I was like, yeah. And like that sentence changed my life. And I go by that all the time. Like nervous is for people who aren't prepared. So just prepare. Give the workshop several times, write down the workshop, have reference notes, and that way you'll feel super confident and it'll be a lot easier for you to get up on stage. Amazing advice. Amazing advice. Yeah, I remember the first time I got on stage for Superfluid, Fran told me like five minutes beforehand, hey, you're going on stage. So I didn't have time to prepare, but um, I I second all those points. Uh, That's honestly really, really good advice. Um, So shifting like away from the the DevRel stuff and technical stuff again into a more general thing as we get toward the end of this. you wrote an amazing post uh, in the week leading up to DevCon, I think, about why it's so important for our industry to try to serve the Latin American market, right? Do you want to just expand on or maybe describe what the thesis of that post is? And maybe we can elaborate from there. Yeah. So in that post, it's titled The Dead End of Eurocentric Crypto. And I basically called out the entire crypto industry for spending millions and and at this point, probably billions of dollars investing in companies and in protocols. And we really haven't seen anything worthwhile come out of it in terms of adoption. So we're seeing a lot of cool projects spring up, but there's really been very few cases where we're actually solving a real problem. And I kind of make a joke and I made this joke earlier where it's like in America and in Europe, we have gotten to things like crypto dick butts because we literally can't think of anything to, to work on. Like we, we have degenerated so far down that we're like, how can we make an NFT that like number go up? So, so the thesis of the post is like, if we want innovation and we want adoption, it's going to come from places like Colombia, Latin America, the Middle East, Asia, where they actually have a different set of problems that crypto can actually be useful for at a very surface level. So, right, you and I can think of innovative use cases for crypto that don't involve financial services. And I think we're going to get there one day. But right now, there's countries that don't have access to proper financial service and proper financial infrastructure that we can address today. We can literally address it today. So my thesis is, hey, if we want innovation and we want people to actually use crypto, we need to actually stop spending money here. We need to spend money in Latin America. We need to translate our developer docs to Spanish. We need to give grants to communities building stuff in, in Latin America and regions like this. Yeah, I think that's a very good point. And we, we tried to expand on that a little bit in our panel on real-world assets. Uh, 
But I, I think a big thing is just bootstrapping some of the developer communities in these in these areas, right? It is doing things like translating docs into Spanish, hiring Spanish-speaking DevRels, right? Doing things like that is useful. Um, let's say that you know someone in the audience or someone maybe listening to this after this is recorded and put out is uh, a technical person or maybe you know maybe, maybe they're just starting to learn to code and they live in South America or Africa or the Middle East, one of these places that isn't Europe or America, right? What, what advice do you have for them uh, when it comes to getting into this industry and contributing? One of the best things about Web3 is that it really truly is permissionless. And for the first time, a contributor from anywhere can contribute, not only contribute, but can get paid and be recognized as a contributor. Whereas before, I think in Web2, the barrier was a lot higher. You have to apply for a job. You have to apply to university. You have to interview. And by nature of that, right, like, for example, Stanford, you can't just like apply to Stanford if you live in certain countries. It's just not a thing. There's a bunch of barriers that you have to get through. And in Web3, one of the amazing vehicles are DAOs. So there's a lot of DAOs out there that are developer-focused DAOs that are looking for contributors that you can literally just start contributing and immediately start getting paid and immediately start being recognized as a contributor in your community. And then, you know, a month goes by, two months goes by, and someone says, hey, we need a developer. Does anyone know a good node developer? And now you have a community of 100 plus people up to 7,000 plus people vouching for you saying, yeah, this person worked in my DAO and they're really good. Look at what they've shipped. I've seen it personally. So we're going from a place where you kind of have to fight and jump through a lot of hoops to a scenario where not only is it permissionless, but now you can build up a network of peers that will vouch for you in a global community where getting paid is not a problem. You can literally just send someone USDC and that's what we do. I'm also the founder of Women Build Web 3, which is a DAO specifically for female engineering talent. And we pay all of our contributors and we always have. We have contributors from Africa. We have contributors specifically in Nigeria and Kenya. We have contributors from Bangladesh, places where it would be difficult maybe normally to pay them through things like PayPal, like where we might run into some things where we literally just send out a transaction every month from our treasury and it's perfectly fine. So I would say if you're from one of these places, find a community that you can kind of contribute to, whether it be a developer community, a, you know, you're a product person, a UX. We need all of the talent from all parts of the stack and just start contributing and putting yourself out there. And very soon you'll start to be recognized amongst your peers. Yeah, I second that. One other really trippy thing is that age really doesn't matter here either, right? I've seen some freaky good 15-year-old developers that have like won hackathons and things like that and, and really, really impressed me and are earning like decent money as high school-age people uh, contributing to Web3. So that, that's a big thing. Uh, so as we, as we wrap up here, final question I usually like to ask is like a, another very zoomed out question. You know, let, let's say we zoom out and it's, it's 2023, not 2023, 2032, sorry. And we're looking around at crypto and seeing how things evolved. What do you hope our industry looks like in 10 years? I hope that in 10 years, we're solving real problems for real people. That's kind of my baseline hope. I hope that we get to a place where we're actually kind of executing the vision that we all have. I think one thing about us is we really are all aligned at an ethos level. Like I know we all want to solve problems and we're all striving for that. And I deeply respect everyone who's working in this industry because I know we're all working on that and it's not easy. So my hope is that in 10 years, we're actually solving problems. In 10 years, we're able to support regions that are facing socioeconomic instability and we can provide a new, more secure financial infrastructure that they can depend on. And then outside of that, I hope to see like innovative use cases that are unlocked by crypto, right? Like I'm not a party pooper. I'm not a boring person. Like I want to see 
I don't know, maybe crypto dick butts gets you to VIP in the future. Like, I would love to see that. I would love to see innovative things that we could have never imagined before. But that, that comes later. Like, first I want to solve, like, good, good real problems. And then I want to do all the imaginative things. Good answer. I can get behind that vision for sure. Uh, all right. So, Cammy, thank you so much for coming on. Where, where would you like to point people, right? You said you're the founder of a couple of organizations, Women Build Web3, and your organization that's teaching young girls how to code. Uh, I, I mentioned your Twitter handle, but where, where can people find you and all your work? Yeah, the best place is on Twitter, at Cammy and this thing. You can follow Fuel uh, and learn. Oh, sorry. One more thing about Fuel I actually want to plug is as the head of developer relations and with this vision, we're going to start executing on a strategy around Latin America where we translate our developer docs, where we're giving grants specifically to teams working in Latin America and creating communities down here to support developers. So if you want to learn more about that, you can follow Fuel on Twitter at FuelLabs underscore. And you can follow Women Build Web 3 on Twitter at Women Build Web 3. And um, yeah, I think that's it. All right, guys, give it up for Cammy. Thank you. Thanks for having me.